If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported directly by listeners like you. And this allows us to critically and honestly cover anything and everything, and also explore narratives often sidelined by mainstream outlets. So if you're learning from or inspired by the show, we need you, and we're counting on your support starting at just a tip of $2 a month at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't want to put up a paywall though, so if you can't afford to give anything right now, please don't worry at all. Just take good care of yourself and your loved ones and enjoy the show. And if you've already contributed, share the show or written us a five-star review, all this helps so much and we are so grateful. Thank you. Oh, the times are urgent. Let us slow down. Slowing down is... Losing our way. Losing our way is not a human capacity or a human capability. It is about the tensions, the invitations that, that are now in, in the world at large, inviting us to, to listen deeply, to, to be keen and to be fresh and to be quick with our heels, to follow the sights and sounds and smells of the world. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Bayo Akomolafe, a widely celebrated international speaker, post-humanist thinker, poet, teacher, public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home, and We Will Tell Our Own Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. Bio is also chief curator of the Emergence Network and host of the online post-activist course, We Will Dance with Mountains. Welcome, Bio. It's such an honor to have you here. So great to be here with you, Sister Camilla. Thank you. Of course. So I would love to begin by holding space for you to share about the pivotal moments in your background and thinking that leads you to identify as a practicing and recovering psychologist, and also the <laughs> relationships that have guided you towards who you're still becoming today. Right. Well, I could say that sitting at the feet of Yoruba Babalawas, Babalawa is the term the indigenous term for a healer who is also a priest, who is also 
a cosmic advocate of some sort. And uh, as a psychologist in training during my PhD, I decided to make the scandalous choice of studying with them as a way of responding to the psychiatric healthcare system crisis in my country, Nigeria. I say it's scandalous because um, Nigeria is heavily Christianized or Islamicized and traditional religions such as the Ifa traditional system, nature religion, are not looked well upon in most spaces. But I decided to study with them nonetheless, and they taught me things that I'm still playing with today. It was like meeting tricksters, or it was like meeting descendants of the Orisha pantheon. They taught me about the agency of the world in ways that preceded my eventual dabbling into new materialist and post-humanist discourse. They, they spoke to me about, let me give a very practical down-to-earth example of one conversation of a Babalao saying, why would you want to medicate auditory hallucination? What if that's your father and, or your mother or your grandfather or your grandmother trying to speak with you? You know, they, they, they saw the things that I'd learned to pathologize because of my Western-styled training as spiritual crisis, you know, spiritual crises. And that was a turning point for me. It was a coming down to earth. And I'm still playing with those issues, those matters, those invitations today. So I describe myself as a recovering psychologist because I, I mean to signify that I'm recovering not only from my training, but from the cosmo perception and the Cosmo visions that gave birth to my training. I'm trying to see beyond the pathologies, the diagnostic systems, the axiologies that created the colonial dosologies that we call Western psychology or Western psychiatry. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's one way to answer that question, I think. Yeah, and I feel like this theme is resonant throughout your work, just this way of potentially reframing what we view as crises and the problem as cracks yeah. or yeah. openings or opportunities for a different way of being. And yes. within the activism space, I see this journey that a lot of people go on, which begins with people maybe focusing on their own roles in the greater system, changing their individual lifestyles, engaging in conscious consumerism, yeah. working to unravel our own prejudices and biases. And then at some point, we connect the dots to the greater system and reach the conclusion that our problems are systemic, which is why collective activism is important. But you challenge this with the message that the system is not the cause of our problems. So a lot of us think that we've gone deep enough to knowing to focus our attention and activism on changing the system, but you contend that that's not deep enough. So can you take us through your thought process on this? Well, systems are linguistic conveniences, right? Um, we, we chart out algorithms and systems are largely human matters, matters of language, matters of... Um, human created terms and formulas and all of that. But the world exceeds systems, right? The world is, uh, this might not be, this might not be acceptable to modern cosmo perceptions, <laughs> right? This liberal humanist modernist thinking situates humans at the center of the room, so to speak. We are in charge. 
We are agentially superior to all other kinds of life on the planet. And we live on the planet, quite literally. We are not the planet in its ongoing materiality. We are literally on the planet. We are lords of the realm. And so we think in terms of this linear, quite, to put it poetically, maybe slightly uh, pathologically, Mm -hmm. anorexic space, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? We live in this tiny humanist bubble and we deal with the marks on the bubble, the hieroglyphics on the bubble. Post-humanist thinking, animist thinking, even Yoruba indigenous invitations are suggestions that the world is too unwieldy to be systemic, right? The world is too messy, too promiscuous, too agential to be predictable, to be algorithmically convenient or conservative. So there is um, this embarrassing excessiveness is the, uh, I think, the challenge of our times. You know, the activism is usually framed in terms that, you know, we can understand. It's the, it's the bad guys against the good guys. It's us versus them. And I'm trying to say that there are other moves to be made especially in times like this, we are in, let me call it a, we're in times of fissures and cracks and fault lines. And what those things do is that they upset the coherence of the body. And so we're in a time, you know, to borrow the the term of my brother, Orland Bishop, this is a crisis of form, right? And, And so we're now diasporic. Our bodies are disorganized. We're disarticulated by the pandemic, by the Anthropocene, by racial issues, by poverty, by all these things that we name as crises. But, but the issue here is that we tend to repeat and reinscribe these crisis events, even in our, with our best efforts to, re- to resolve them, right? Because we're still stuck within the same epistemologically, uh, epistemological space. And so we go around in bubbles, even with justice, Kamea. I mean, I, I've, I wrote recently in, in an essay that I'm still developing that injustice requires justice to function well, right? Which might be a scandalous thing to mm. say, but, it, but, but it's, it's no longer justice versus injustice. It's justice hyphen injustice, that these systems call upon each other. Even the state that guarantees or uh, you know, attempts to guarantee justice is already a bedrock of violence, is already a bedrock of, bedrock of displacement and annihilation and invisibilization. So we need probably to go beyond critique, go beyond justice, and maybe edge towards experimental liminal spaces of transformation. And that requires a different kind of move and thinking altogether. It requires getting lost. Mm. Let me leave it at that. And as you share with the concept of post-activism, it's in part an invitation to move away from a notion of agency that situates responsibility, power, centrality, and control in the human figure, end quote. Especially in light of the Anthropocene, which is interestingly defined that way to center humanity's unprecedented impact on Earth, people may feel that accountability and responsibility are justified reactions to knowing how our dominant civilization has caused harm to our collective well-being. But in what ways do you see this just, just sort of replicating the same pattern of human supremacy in the solutions that we hype up as what's going to quote unquote save the planet, whether with our climate actions or these sustainable mm-hmm. development goals or even our vision of harmony with Earth. 
And how do we navigate this feeling of responsibility to be the ones to fix the problems that our humanity created? Beautiful questions. I'll give some tangible, probably, examples and um, speak about climate action, climate justice, and how we often frame it as sustainability, mm. right? It's it's adaptability. It's 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 us adapting to the to the problems. Is mitigation. It's there. There are there are ways in which we tend to reduce. There's there's a subtle, and it's not so subtle anymore. I think to those who are familiar with these ideas, there's a somewhat subtle reductionism that is at work here. We are trying to frame the unframable. It's it's almost the way we're dealing with the pandemic, right? The the express uh, the most obvious thing to do, I think, for us who are gestating within cities, who think about the new in terms of new iPads or new <laughs> or new phones or or something, and the old as things that have been done with, who think about embodiment as individuated and that we're separate from each other. It's easy for us to think about the pandemic as a matter of an enemy. You know, we frame it as a war upon this infinitesimally small enemy, right? So there's there's an act of reductionism there. We reduce it to frameable terms, and then we try to stamp it out. It's the same with cancel culture, right? We take a life, and we pixelate the life. We reduce it and we put it into a box. And so we try to delete it sure, or defragment mm-hmm. the system by deleting the life, by uh, exterminating it. And there's why is this centralizing for humans? Because we assume that we can dip in and out of different ethical temporalities. I can look at your life in 1970 and decide that I know better than the circumstances. I know better than the context. I have a God's eye point of view. And based upon where I'm standing right now, I can judge that you are wrong and you ought to apologize or you ought to be accountable for this. And so I I remove your life from context and then I stamp it out. So there, in spite of all the good things that, for I don't know why I'm speaking about cancer culture right now, <laughs> but in spite of the 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 urgings and the the, the good things that cancel culture wants to do, it's still stuck within the epistemology of good versus evil, us versus them. Humans, you know, are removed from context. And we have this essentializing thing called a conscience. And we can decide uh, willy-nilly who is bad apple or good apple. Well, I guess I'm I'm interested to hear this contextualized with science because I have a lot of critiques on Western science, but yes. I know that people will say, you know, science attempts to really contextualize the problems by looking at data across decades or even centuries and beyond. And also, it's a lot of our climate action is guided by science. So how would you sort of apply this train of thought to are ideas of solutions that have come about from Western science in, in this day? Well, it's this, it's this universalization of science as everything that is knowledgeable. It's like Google, right? If, if you can Google it and you can find it in, a search en- in that search engine, then it's, uh, it's a product of Google. So it's the conversion. It's almost like um, 
it almost replicates the extractivism of late stage capitalism. We can take the knowledge and put it within our own terms. We can render it into data and then we call it um, science. Basically, it's it's the plantation all over again. Now, this is not to wipe out science, but it is to situate science as also a colonial imperial trope. It's also a way of knowing. It's it's framed within a cosmo perception that tries to render all other cosmo perceptions useless, except they're funneled through its linear pipelines or its prisms. But science is just as biased. It's just as political. It's just as culturally closed as all other forms of knowledge. There isn't a perch to stand on with which we can move the world. So it's it's this it's the you know climate action as composed within these epistemologies tend to leave out, for instance, uh, the agency of the world at large, right? They they leave out will shit or the activisms of bacteria or ancestral longings and desires or traumatic landscapes that are repeating themselves over and over again. And we lose sight of the fact that we are way in, you know, over our heads and we're dealing with something that is in my, uh, you know, calculations, fundamentally incalculable. Mm. It is unframable. It is something that calls for a shape shift, not for a resolution or solutions or technological or techno-bureaucratic deletions or funding or more funding or, you know, Paris agreements. It is an invitation to stop in our tracks and fail. Like failure is the gift that we're looking for right now. And we don't know how to do it because we are trapped in this epistemology of continuity. So science gives us this picture. It frames what is happening in the world, but it doesn't tell us about what subsidizes these framings? It doesn't, for instance, the Anthropocene doesn't tell us about, you know, it just says this is a planetary, a cautionary planetary ethic. We are all in this together and all humans are at risk of losing their planet. But it doesn't say that African bodies, black bodies have subsidized the Anthropocene, that Africa was the continent that they extracted mineral resources from that air quality is dwindling every day, that the Niger Delta is suffering 7,000 spillages a year, you know, that the World Health Organization does not go to Africa or Lagos to measure air quality, but it does so in London and in New York and in Seattle, right? So this, it, it doesn't say who is paying for. It just wraps everyone into this humongous hoop or heap and calls them human. But many people have been denied access into human. And I'm saying right now that the climate disaster is only for humans, right? There are more than human communities, and there are ways of reframing these modern instigated anxieties are entirely different. The world has ended many times before. This isn't new.
So of course, the tools of science or whatever frameworks we come up with, they can be helpful when we recognize that that's what they are. They're merely tools and frameworks. And the problems come when we ground our realities in these frameworks alone and give them too much power in helping us to understand the world, which cannot be tamed is the word you use or yes. framed and etc. And yes. so in terms of reorienting the role of people wanting to play their parts to address all the suffering and injustices that various communities and more than more than human communities might be facing today, how would you reframe the goal or is even setting a goal based on human understandings of the problems and solutions and then dictating how we're going to reshape the world towards that vision? Is setting this goal based on our desires and limited ways of knowing in of itself human-centric and human-exceptionalist? Because by doing so, we're still not really just surrendering and letting things be and letting go of our power and agency or even giving ourselves space to reconceptualize power. Right. So, uh, I, I think that when a, when a crisis of the kinds that we're experiencing contemporarily happens, there are at least for the purpose of our conversation, two basic kinds of moves. There is the move of reconvergence, right? Our guts have been splattered across the walls. Sorry to paint such a grotesque <laughs> picture, but we're we're flailing and we're we've been exploded, so to speak. There are eruptions everywhere. Our body is not as coherent anymore. And we're trying to articulate ourselves again. Uh, one move is to converge based on memory, the image that we've received, right? In theological terms, it would be the image of God, which is still an archetypal and active image that is quite central to the algorithms of modernity. The image of God, which is uh, most closely associated with the white male, right? The white male stands above all other kinds of bodies, supreme, closest to the divine. And so we're trying to repackage ourselves back again. We're trying to defeat the virus, get back to what we knew before, into our consumerist, you know, capitalist perpetuity. And then, you know, that's how life goes. Or we can f decide to do something with our wounds that might recall, you know, what that Babalawa told me, that... um he didn't particularly put it this way, but I'm paraphrasing, that wounds are not things to be cured all the time, that some wounds are portals, right? Access points in a rhizomatic universe to other ways of being and becoming. Right, so I, I, I would use or borrow Gilles Deleuze's um, framing here. We have a politics of recognition, and we have a politics of invisibility or imperceptibility. And I don't think one is supreme above the other. A politics of recognition is, is conservative in that it seeks to reinforce and reinscribe same old patterns. Uh, so when we seek out justice, right, when we're ankling and you know, grieving for climate justice, there is a sense in which we're still dealing with the same powers as usual. We're gathering at the foot of this, the nation state. We are seeking uh, giant corporations to be more responsible. There is a sense in which we're giving them legitimacy mm. and saying, you have the power, so do something about this. 
do something about this. And so that's why, in a sense, it's almost like we take these forms without knowing them. Protests uh, tend to look like this long, linear lines heading towards where power is. And I think that, um, I think the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene or whatever scene you want to call it, I prefer to call it the Afrocene. I think, I think there's more power available, queer power available. And so this is why I, I talk about fugitivity. Right, there are other kinds of moves we can make that is not about reinforcing these humanist exceptionalist measures. That is not to say that there is some pure way out, right? That, um, and I'm not trying to make some kind of strict binary configuration here. We will seek justice, we will pay our bills, and we will need to do that, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> there, there, we will, we'll still need to do gigs, we'll still need to do podcasts, we'll still need to say the things that we're saying, we'll do courses, we'll use Zoom, we'll use Facebook. But there is another kind of activity, maybe supplementary politics, you might call it, weird politics, that is ongoing, that is about resuscitating the agency of grieving, for instance, grief. Grief as as a becoming in itself. There is another kind of work that brings us to meet the world in a new way that that gives us uh, permission to fail, like to follow our poop. Sorry to be <laughs> indelicate. No, no apologies yeah, for being no that apologies. indelicate. That's what I'm <laughs> yeah. here for. The, you know. So so this is this is the ongoing framing that I call post activism, or what you might think of as post disaster spirituality. Mm. What do we do after we fall? What do we do when we can no longer have hope? Or where do, what do we do when hope becomes toxic, right? It leads us back on the highway. Then we need to find ways of creating a cartographical project that honors failure, that honors desires, that looks for other beings to meet us halfway. But unless we do that, we'll be stuck in, most likely stuck in repetition and cyclicity. Mm. And when you talk about new materialism or the rejection of human centrality, you've shared yeah. in passing that you try to exclude yourself in the category of humans. I'm not sure if I misinterpreted what you said. I think this was a part of your past conversation with <laughs> the Garrison Institute. But if this is what you meant, I'd be curious yeah. to hear you share more about this and whether this is another way <laughs> that you're embodying fugitivity. I think I am embodying fugitivity. And there's some there's some embellishment, tricksterism, and uh, well, playfulness there mm-hmm. as well. I, I think in the rhetoric of the moment, I speak as a poet when I say, and that is not to say that I speak less seriously. I think to speak most seriously is to speak like mm-hmm. a poet, <laughs> right? When I say that I I reject humanity or or that I'm speaking not as a human, I am trying to I'm trying to shine light on how more than human we are or how post-humanist we are, right? That the human is a Euro-American creation. It is not just a concept, you know, it's, it's not just the, the bipedal figures that we associate ourselves with. It is a territory of acting and becoming and thinking right? The, the human is the transatlantic slave trade. The human is the westward pushing of the pilgrims on the so-called new world to find gold or to find home or to find acceptance and recognition. The human is the extractivist politics 
that thinks we can build and build and build towers like Babel and gain linguistic superiority in an ongoing fashion without stopping forever. It is the transhumanist vocation to continue to build until we reach a singularity, so to speak. It is the dreaming that situates us as lords and masters, like I said before. The, the human is not just a thing, like, like I said. It is an algorithm. It's a cybernetic network. It's a force field, right? And I think fugitivity and rejecting the human is about you know losing our way, uh, meeting the world in a way that hacks that algorithm, right? What, what does the human, as in the city, as in the nation state, invite us to do? What does it invite us to notice? And then how do we notice differently, right? So this is how I want to invite, you know, this post-humanist politics, hopefully an emancipatory politics of acting that goes beyond the tropes that we're used to. Mm -hmm. I could say, just to add to that, um, and this is something that Marisol de la Cadena, uh, de la Cadena shared with me some time ago, that the slaves were from the Atlantic, um, from Africa, were brought across the Atlantic. They were humanized. The slaves were humanized. That is, their vast, fleshly, carnal, embodied states were reduced into these boxes of humanity, and they were placed. They were placed at the end of the spectrum of being human, closer to the animal, closer to nature while white bodies were perched at the other end of the spectrum. I think we have been fighting within the spectrum for too long, and I, but I, I think our, our task now is to remove ourselves from this spectrum and find other ways of being in power with the world. Wow, that certainly invites a different, different understanding of the term humanizing, because I think oftentimes it's yes. it's framed <laughs> yes. as something that is positive, like you're, you're being recognized yes. as a person. But in yes. a sense, it's also you're being limited by this framework. You're being limited by this language. So yes. really powerful. I'm going to keep marinating on that. And a critique you have of activism is that so much of it has become representational about identity, about being heard, being seen about having a seat at the table. And in a sense, fugitivity, which is a major theme of your work, is rebellious against the idea of inclusivity, which mm -hmm. has been the goal for so many who believe it to be the way to achieve justice yeah. and collective healing in this yeah. unjust society. Yes. So while people might yearn deeply to belong, to finally be accepted, to finally share the same freedoms as others with greater privilege, what limitations and constraints are there when we uphold ideas of inclusivity politics as the way forward? We, we will tend to behave like the context that we're in, right? Behavior is eco-psychological. That is, the, the body is the mind, the mind is the body. The body hyphenates the mind and the mind hyphenates the body so that we will behave like the worlds that we occupy. We will behave like the tools that we pretend to own, right? Tools also use us. Identity was a useful survival tactic. We needed to raise the banner of identity to meet the boots of oppression. We needed to say, hey, we need a space in this experiment that you're building because we need our children to live, we need clean air and clean water and food on our tables. We want jobs as well. And we want to be recognized as being worthy of 
you know, our salaries, you know, it's, 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 it's needed, right? I, we are always participating diffractively in these spaces of seeking recognition. The, The trouble with that and the shadow with seeking recognition might just be neatly, um, articulated by that old supposedly Chinese is it, it it's a saying I think but I think it's um I I, I don't know it's if it's historical but I've read somewhere that this is a saying there are three curses I think they're called three Chinese curses the first one is may you live in interesting times and the second curse growing in intensity is may you be seen and may you be seen by the king, by the empire, mm. right? May you be recognized. <laughs> and the final one is, may you get what you want. <laughs> mm. So these curses, in a way, uh, many people will not take them as curses. You're like, I want to get what I want. But there's risk. There's a risk in being saved, right? Because once you are included, you behave and are entrapped and are incarcerated within the systems that you've bought into. And now we lose sight of the other powers that are at work. We lose sight of the violence of inclusion. Like inclusion, this is Brother Wehelie saying this, that inclusion is no less violent than exclusion. To be included is to, in a sense, be put on that uh, protein, that bed, that bed of Greek origin. I forget the name of the, of the highway robber that it's attributed to. Just slipped my mind at the moment. It's not Promethean, I think. But, but we are enforced. We're, we're, we're forced to give up our names. We're forced to give up something just to be seen, right? Recognition is not to be beheld. Recognition is to be reformulated in ways that are acceptable to a dominant force, right? So there's something lost in the act of recognition. Being seen is just a way of glossing over the fact that there's something missing when we are recognized, so to speak. So if I recognize you, I might be playing into the very, the very colonial dynamics that you're trying to extricate yourself from. This is not just me speaking. This is Spinoza. This is um, uh, Deleuze. This is Walishuenka. These are authors and speakers, decolonial writers that have been warning us for a long time that blackness, for instance, is not about this adversarial quality fighting for a place within white modernity. Blackness is the end of man, is the end of the anthropos. It seeks cracks, right, so that it can fugitively extricate itself, exile its body from the plantation. So I don't want to be a house nigger. I don't want to be a house negro. I want to find other places of being in power with the world. And that is not to belittle the politics that seeks justice. That is not to dismiss those heartfelt, passionate attempts to find a place for us within white modernity. And the last thing I want to touch on before our lightning round questions to help us ground this conversation, because so much of this is about perspective shifts and relational shifts. I would love if you can share how you're embodying fugitivity in your personal life, how that's shaped um, your decision for unschooling your children and how moving away from being sort of directive in your relationship with your children has maybe brought you to new ways of thinking and being that you didn't know could be possible before? It's a struggle, my sister. The, um, uh, the, with, with our 
children, we were perfectly schooled, if there's such a thing. My wife and I, I mean, um, were schooled very well. We're very, we're high flying students, overachieving academics. And then we decided to unschool our kids. Unschooling really is our decolonial practice. It's our fugitive practice. And we're learning from our kids surprising things that I cannot reduce into a lightning round situation, <laughs> except to say that we're learning how to fail. And our children are teaching us as prophets of the realm. Right? They're inviting us to see things that we never noticed before and to meet the world anew. Yeah, let me just leave it at that. Thank you so much. I have three lightning round closing questions for you before we wrap up. I'm very nervous about the lightning round. <laughs> I've right. never done lightning round. So I'm breathing harder this time. <laughs> yeah, you'll be great. What's okay. an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? <laughs> my God, I'm really nervous. <laughs> um, I'm just going to look at one on my desk and say um, The Incorporeal by Elizabeth Grosh. Mm. And Material Echo Criticism by Iovino and Opperman. And uh, Meeting the Universe Halfway by Karen Barad is always, always, always a great book to read. Dense and, and difficult to read for, I think, most people. But it's a beautiful book. What do you tell yourself or practice on a day-to-day -to, -day to stay grounded and inspired? I journal a lot. I do a lot of journaling and writing. That's my most, that's my deeper spirituality. We have our gatherings in our family where we check in and decide things. And I know that seems trite and probably very familiar, but it's very grounding for me because I'm very atmospheric and volatile. I could float away in thinking to another planet. That's very grounding for me to be with my children, to be with my wife, um, and then to journal, to write. Writing is deep spirituality for me. Mm. And I usually ask what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment to give our listeners something to hold on to. But I know hope is another word that you like to deconstruct. Yeah. So let me ask you this. <laughs> what role can hopelessness play for us? Uh, we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. And that's probably that's probably the point the, uh, there there isn't some treasure at the end of this rainbow like if you follow this path things will things will be fine i don't know that but i just know that following a different path is not the same body walking the path bodies are instruments of the journeys that they undertake right so that maybe in dismantling the universality and the supremacy and the surface-like tension of hope, we find that there is a subterranean abundance that we're missing when we frame the world as this binary between hope and hopelessness. So I'm not thinking of hopelessness as a pure category unto itself, but I am saying that there are ways of disabusing uh, our minds of the eternal positivity that we're invited to, you know, to approximate 
And maybe in losing a bit of that positivity, we might catch a glimpse of some other work that we can be doing. And the promise of that is surprise. The promise of that is fugitivity. Maybe just leaving the plantation is enough. And then we might find the magic in other worlds and other becomings. Mm. Well, to our listener, uh, we are coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Bio's work, you can head to www.bioacomolafe.net, www.emergencenetwork.org. Bio, every conversation I've listened with you um, has challenged me a little more, and this is yet another one of them, so I'm deeply grateful, (laughs) and thank you for sharing this time with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Oh, the times are urgent. Let us slow down. Slowing down is losing our way. Losing our way is not a human capacity or a human capability. It is about the tensions, the invitations that, that are now in, in the world at large, inviting us to, to listen deeply, to, to be keen and to be fresh and to be quick with our heels to follow the sights and sounds and smells of the world, which is now no longer mute and dumb as modernity would have us believe it is. It's now alive. It's alien and wanting us to do more than just save ourselves. So let us slow down and listen. And maybe we might hear something magical. Mm. And if I can just ask one last follow-up to that, um, a lot of this conversation has been about perspective shifts, relational shifts, invitations to different ways of being. And I just wonder if some people might ask, are only those with privilege able to slow down and give room for these deeper transformations in this way? So what would you say to this in light of, you know, so many people being so burnt out and not having additional time or headspace for this sort of deep transformation. <laughs> right. Uh, I I once told a German brother of mine, I spoke, I gave a keynote in South Africa and I spoke about slowing down. And he wrote me about his experiments in slowing down. He said he went back to work. He tried to do things slowly, write the memo slowly, do stuff slowly. And then he felt it wasn't working. So uh, what's this idea? It's not working for me. What's this idea of slowing down? <laughs> So I, I wrote back to him and said, slowing down is not a function of speed. It's not, let's take a break. It's not, huh, let's uh, go on vacation, right? Let's leave it all behind. It's none of that. Slowing down is a function of deepening awareness, noticing the others in the room. In, in fact, in some ways, for my book, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, I needed to go to a place where there was I felt a deeper privilege that modernity does not know how to recognize. I spent some time in the slum, you know, which is what a UN expert or official would say is an impoverished, horrible place. And I'm not trying to romanticize the dark issues there, but I'm trying to say there's a strange sort of abundance and a liminality in those spaces that is missing when we raise our rulers and GDPs and measure people in that way. So Slowing down is not a function of privilege. It's a function of intimacy with a world that is agentially alive. It's a crossroad dynamic, right? In a sense, black bodies um, repressed to nature, positioned as animals, right? In the spectrum of humanization have uh, historically been closer, so to speak, to nature, 
alive to nature. We've been trying to climb up the ladder of humanity, but I think there's power in those places. So this is minoritarian politics we're speaking about here. It's not a function of uh, privilege. In fact, those who have privilege might have it difficult slowing down, have it more <laughs> difficult slowing down in the senses that I invite, in the shamanic senses that I invite. You are listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered show which you can support and co-create with us starting from $2 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't have any corporate sponsors nor a marketing agency behind us. So if you enjoyed the episode and can help share it with your friends or write a review in the podcast app, that would help so much and be so greatly appreciated. Today's musical offering is I'm Not a Mountain, written and performed by Sarah Kinsley. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support. And I will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>